Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and while there is some dispute about the accuracy of the story of Paul Revere supposedly riding through town in the early days of the American Revolution, warning that the British are coming, the larger point still stands. The role of truth-teller and bell-ringer during times of national crisis and danger is critical. Frederick Douglass warned the nation in an 1852 speech called What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, where he talked about the feeling of the nation must be quickened, the conscience of the nation must be roused, the hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed. One of Martin Luther King's iconic speeches was his 1967 address titled A Time to Break Silence, where he called on the country to act to end the Vietnam War. And today, our country stands at an inflection point, and the stakes are enormous. After electing the first black president and then suffering a withering backlash with the election of the proudly pro-white nationalist president, a battle continues to rage between those who want this to be a multiracial democracy and those who want America to fundamentally be a white nation. And everyone who has some platform should be trying to sound the alarm about the nature of this fight and what is at stake. I am trying to do my small part both through this podcast, through my writing in general, and by writing my second book, How We Win the Civil War. And today's episode of the podcast is the second in a four-part series that are doing a deep dive into the themes of the book. And there's nobody in the national media who's doing more with his platform to highlight what is happening in terms of the battle between red America and blue America than our current guest. He's been regularly writing, tweeting, and speaking out on television as Trump's followers have aggressively moved to rewrite laws, suppress votes, and overall reshape America in the image of its monochromatic founders. For this conversation, I'm joined as always by my co-host, Charlene Chang. Hi, Charlene. How are you? And do you want to introduce our special guest? Hey, Steve. I'm, I'm just so glad that our guest today, Ron Brownstein, is joining us again. And the term respected journalist may sound like an oxymoron to some <laughs> Spoken people. like a former journalist. <laughs> yes. And I know that those two words don't really get thrown around together that much. But in the journalism business, Ron Brownstein is not only an OG, and I say that with the utmost respect, uh, and props, but also he is really one of the most respected among his peers. And I just feel like I wanted to make sure that our listeners know that because, you know, I just feel so grateful that we have a chance to pick his brain and get to hear from him beyond just the articles and many different ways we get to hear his analysis and voice out there, but that we actually get to be in conversation with him today, especially, like you said, during these urgent times. As a reminder to our listeners, we had Ron on back in April 2020, just as the pandemic was beginning. Mm -hmm. I really encourage everyone to go back and listen to that episode. We'll include that link in our show notes to that episode so you can check it out. And okay, for those of you who are learning about and meeting Ron today for the first time on our show, Ron is one of the country's top journalists, as I've said, and a two-time finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. He's a senior editor at The Atlantic and a senior political analyst for CNN, where he writes the Fault Lines column and appears on TV often to offer political commentary. Ron has also written seven books. Yep, Wait. I hear the inflection <laughs> and emphasis. And we all bow down in front of that. Steve and I know how hard it's even been to put two books out into the world. So always yeah, great admiration for these great minds putting out uh, such important books one after another. 
Ron had written six when we met him two years ago. So we really want to congratulate Ron today and um, let people know about his newest book. came out this year. Correct me if I'm wrong. The title is Rock Me on the Water, 1974, the year Los Angeles transformed movies, music, television, and politics. Welcome back, Ron, and thanks again so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for all those kind words, and thanks for having me back. Yeah, no, we're, right. we're excited to have you. And you were the first pandemic guest, actually. Like uh, we had to reschedule originally. It was supposed yeah. to be March of 2020, and then we had to reschedule because of the pandemic. So. It's kind of the how can you miss me if I won't go away thing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so. oh, good to be with you. So let's get into it. And so just to get started, right? So what, like when my publisher approached me in early 2020 by writing a second book, I suggested that we use the Civil War as a metaphor mm. for the times that we're in. Right. And then I, I, I did not expect that people carrying the Confederate flag and wearing shirts saying MAGA Civil War would storm the Capitol and build a gallows to hang the vice president. Nor did I expect the majority of the Republicans to essentially vote to overthrow the elected government of the country. Mm-hmm. But Ron, you've been ahead of this curve and you've been on this for, a, for quite a while. And so you wrote back in October of 2020 where you put this moment in the historical context of that Civil War era. Right. You had this piece about why yeah. the 2020s could be just as dangerous as the 1850s. You talked about two different paths the country could take, the California path or the 1850s path. So can you share why you wrote that and what was the essential message that you were trying to convey? Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for that. Um, I, and I, I have believed this for a long time. You know, uh, after the 2012 election, I think my first or second column after the 2012 election, I wrote that if you look at the results, both geographically and demographically, what was becoming clear, and this was in 2012, Mm -hmm. was that the two parties essentially divided along the fault line of whether you were enthusiastic or at least accepting of the way America was changing demographically, culturally, and economically, or whether you were resistant to that and felt displaced by that. And I said in 2012 that it appears that we now have what I called a coalition of restoration, mm-hmm. the Republican coalition, uh, and a coalition of transformation, the Democratic coalition. And I think obviously, uh, you know, everything I wrote about is, is more true today. I mean, that is the central fault line uh, in our politics. Uh, You have uh, a Republican coalition that is centered on the people and places who are most uneasy about what the country is becoming, uh, although with an interesting wrinkle in that that we might not have anticipated a few years ago that I'll get back to. Uh, And you have a Democratic coalition that is overwhelmingly centered on the big metros, more white collar voters, diverse America, millennials, Generation Z, people in the information economy who welcome the the multiracial information age uh, America that is emerging. And I I wrote in in 2020, and and in fact, have written before that, that this was like the 1850s in the sense that the, the real story of the 1850s to me, and there are great books about the 1850s if people want to go back and explore it, including The Impending Crisis by David Potter, which is probably the greatest one of them all. But the, the real story, uh, Steve, as you know, I think of the 1850s is that the sectional divide overwhelmed everything else. There was right. no institution. There was no issue that was immune to it. It subsumed mm-hmm everything over the course of that decade. They could not build the transcontinental railroad, even Mm. though they knew it would benefit the whole country because they couldn't decide whether it would go through the North or the South and and advantage one section or the other. I mean, institutions broke up. The South, you know, censored the mails to prevent the, the distribution of abolitionist literature. And in that sense, I felt like, you know, what, what we are living through is clearly 
like that, where mm-hmm. the red-blue divide, which is essentially at its core, do you accept or resist what America is becoming, is, is you know, uh, kind of metastasizing across every conceivable front. You know, who would have predicted a fight between the governor of Florida mm-hmm. and Disney right. over how to talk about sexual orientation in the classroom? Like 10 years ago, you could not have predicted that. But it's probably less surprising now because basically anything that can be funneled into this dispute mm-hmm. now is. And the other aspect that I thought was very much like the 1850s in what we are living through now is that the South was very conscious that it was the minority of the country. And yet its political strategy was centered on how can we drive national policy even from the minority position. I have a book over my shoulder, uh, which is essentially uh, called The South as a Conscious Minority. Mm. Um, And I think that's very much what we are seeing Today, I mean, mm. you know, uh, Republican Party has lost the popular vote in seven of the last eight presidential elections or Democrats right. have won the popular vote in seven of eight. That's never happened in American history since the formation of the modern party system mm. in 1828. Um, and yet they are looking for ways to maximize kind of their leverage within the system to impose an agenda which is on many fronts, not all fronts, but on many fronts, a minority of agenda of conservative white Christians on the country, even while it's opposed by the majority using kind of the quirks in the constitutional system and increasingly their their kind of lockdown control on essentially half the states in the country. Right, right. Yeah, it's I actually forgotten. I'd read that thing about the mail piece and I had forgotten about that. They refused to deliver through the mail the uh, uh, abolitionist oh, literature. Yeah, yeah. And it, so it's like when, when, Trump was trying to basically, you know, dismantle the post office in 2020. It's like it's not necessarily so unprecedented. In oh, terms of the, abor- the the real parallel is going to be the abortion medication, right? And whether the red states sooner than later try to prevent abortion medication from mm-hmm. being shipped into their state from out of state, and whether this this Supreme Court in the end upholds kind of the primacy of the federal the U.S. mail system in controlling what is delivered where or whether it allows states to create impediments mm-hmm. to that I, I we're not we're not super far away from that right. you know that fight coming well where where do you think we're at right so we you, you wrote this analysis originally in 2012 coalition of restoration coalition of transformation mm-hmm. then we've had you know the election of trump four years of, t- of trump the defeat of trump and then the whole post-Trump, you know, activities in, in, in 2020, 2021, 2022. So where do you, where would you say we're at on that trajectory that, you know, parallel with the 1850s, which direction we go? Where do you think we're at today compared to like 10 years ago? Yeah, we're getting closer to 1859. Yeah, uh, look, I mean, I think, I think the conflict is just escalating and in new ways. And again, go back to the parallels. I mean, what's happening with abortion really looks in some ways like the Fugitive Slave Act to me. Mm. Where, you know, it, it, when was the last time we had conflict directly among the states in this way, where mm. you have red states looking for ways to punish residents who leave their state and go to blue states to get abortions, or to uh, somehow reach out and punish anyone who was involved with it in the blue states, and you have blue states passing laws to try to prevent that from happening? 
I mean, we're talking Fugitive Slave Act here, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, where there were, uh, you know, riots in Boston over enforcing the Fugitive Slave Act. And Daniel Webster never got over, you know, never recovered from his role in the Compromise of 1850 on that. I I think that on every front and, and what we're watching now, as we are speaking, Again, you can't predict like these things, like if you would have told me three, four, five years ago, these things would happen, you would not have imagined it. It becomes Mm -hmm. less unimaginable today because my assumption is any conceivable conflict that can be funneled into this divide will be. Look at what's happening today, right? The governors of Texas and Florida are shipping undocumented immigrants to blue jurisdictions. And the governor of California, who is, you know, trying to become a leader in pushing back on the red states, is asking the Justice Department to see what it can do uh, to stop them. I mean, the level of conflict, not only at the national level between kind of the red and blue coalitions, which we've been seeing, you know, obviously Mm -hmm. a little longer, but the level of conflict that's unfolding among the states as the Supreme Court really opens the door to this by rolling back previously guaranteed national rights and giving the red states more leeway to try to constrain or retrench those rights, which the red states are kind of rushing through the door to do it as quickly as possible before demographic change in their own state threatens their hold on power. You're, You're getting more pressure on the federal government when controlled by Democrats and the blue states themselves to push back against this. Mm-hmm. And so like we're moving to like kind of three-dimensional chest. I mean, we have conflict at every possible level. We have yeah. conflict between the blue states and the red states. We have conflict between blue and red, obviously at the federal level. We have blue states fighting Trump when he's president. We have red mm-hmm. states fighting Biden when he's president. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, the, the conflict to me is kind of becoming all-consuming and, and, and businesses, right? I mean, business, you know, how about, I mean, again, you, you cannot predict each iteration of this. The only safe prediction is that there will always be more iterations of it. Red states punishing companies that are trying to divest from fossil fuels mm-hmm. or red states going after companies that are open to the ESG goals. It's in every way. I think I think one of the big, you know, if you're going to ask me where we are, I think one of the big legacies of the Trump era is that Republican politicians have come to believe, I think correctly, that the most explosive fuel for their coalition is fighting Mm -hmm. the changing America. And so the search for new arenas and venues and kind of fronts of this fight is endless as DeSantis yeah. shows. I'm gonna, I'm gonna just jump uh, in there. Sure, I, I want to. I would lo- love for us to like pivot on this topic of conflict, divide these intensified fights, and dig into Steve's new book and sort of connect the dots there a little bit more. Uh, I wanted to find out from both of you in terms of your analysis of this idea or this reality of the Confederates and the modern day Confederates how it never went away. So Steve, just to kind of give listeners insight, in the first half of your book, you tell us exactly what we're up against. And you talk about how the other side has been using this playbook, the Confederate battle plan, since the armed part of the Civil War ended in 1865. In your book, Steve, that battle plan has five main points. I want you to lift up two of those right now. The first bullet point that you have among those five main points is called Never Give an Inch. And the second you title ruthlessly rewrite the laws. Can you share 
one or two historical examples with us of how Confederates used these two particular tactics to hold back the possibility of a multiracial democracy in this country. Yeah, well, the Civil War itself, frankly, actually is what. And, I, and again, it's funny we like accept these things historically, but then you like really go back and read them, and try to think about them, and explain them to people in simple fashion. The Civil War began when the losing party refused to accept the election results of the candidate who was supported by black people. <laughs> the kind of the essence. So rather than accept the result, they actually succeeded and then took up arms and started killing hundreds of thousands of people, including killing the president of the United States. Right. And so that's a pretty strong example of never giving an inch. And then the, there's so many examples of the ruthlessly writing the laws that they like had to begrudgingly accept the 15th Amendment, well, the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, none of which were easy to pass, by the way. Those were all actually big struggles to get them passed in terms of ending slavery and equal rights under the law and then the right to vote. But even after they got passed, they immediately tried to rewrite the laws, rewrite the rules to restrict them. Right? And one of the things that I didn't know until I was researching the book, and, and it's even ridiculous to say it out loud, is that we used to have white primaries, whites-only primaries in the South in the 1920s and 30s that were upheld essentially by the Supreme Court multiple times. And the theory that, well, the primaries are not public elections, parties are, are private, not governed by the Constitution. So they can have white primaries as long as the general election is not whites only. But in the South, that's all that there were were, were Democratic people at, at that time. The original Confederates were, were the Democrats. So there's this notion that you can, it, it sounds ridiculous, but it's what we had. And that's really in the context of what's actually going on here. And that this, this creative efforts to restrict voter participation has been a cornerstone of the Confederate battle plan, uh, really going back to the Civil War. Ron, for you, in terms of ruthlessly rewriting the rules, that concept, you were writing frequently with great alarm about the wave of voter suppression bills being passed in 2021. What did you see and how has it played out and how does that connect to ruthlessly rewriting the rules? Well, you know, I've, I've said that uh, I think in most cases, these voter, these laws making it more difficult to vote in red states amount to stacking sandbags against a rising tide of demographic change. I mean, you, you know, you've got You've got states where the composition of the electorate is changing. In particular, most of these states, roughly half or more of, and and in many cases, more of everyone turning 18 each year are now kids of color. And you have, I think, in a variety of ways, a a Republican coalition that is rooted in older, white, non-urban parts of these states, whatever state we're talking about, you know, whether it's Texas, Georgia or Arizona, even Florida, that is doing whatever it can to fortify itself and push back the day where this other coalition can stay, take statewide power. And it can be very effective. You know, I, I, I was talking to some political leaders and some Democratic candidates in Texas. I remember Beto O'Rourke, for example, saying to me that, you know, in the long run, it is really hard to solve this problem from inside the boundaries of Texas that ultimately, like, I suppose in some ways, like segregation itself, you know, building a majority for creating an equal playing field at a time when the playing field is already stacked is a very difficult proposition. And so ultimately, 
it is going to take national action. And I think that is the question we face across the board on so many fronts, which is that with the support of the Supreme Court and the defensive assistance of Republican senators wielding the filibuster, you've got the red states essentially unraveling the rights revolution of the past 60 years on as many fronts as they can. And the rights revolution was a movement toward nationalizing more rights and minimizing the ability of states to restrict them. Clearly, we are now moving in the opposite direction, voting at the front of that list, abortion, LGBTQ issues, classroom censorship, book bans. I mean, you know, the list goes on. And the really the question, I think, is not so much whether it's more likely that this is going to be stopped at the national level than it is on a state by state level. And so it's an enormous challenge because uh, if you can consolidate control in enough states by kind of, you know, putting a thumb on the scale on the rules, uh, you can also acquire national power that way mm-hmm. in the Congress and the Senate and the, and the presidency. And then you can seek to impose the red state regime on all of the blue states. And that, I think, in many ways is the real goal. Uh, it's not just to control what happens in Texas or Georgia. It's to uh, Lego like, you know, build enough building blocks of states that you control where you can also control the national government with or without majority support. Right. And I think that that's something that's not appreciated by a lot of people is how much the political power in the 20th century was in places that essentially had completely suppressed the vote of African-Americans, which allowed the conservative whites to take take those positions. What's your assessment? And then what were you what have you heard and how did you take it when you were when, when these laws were passing in like Georgia where they're like banning, bringing people water while they're standing in line and. Texas, where they are outlawing all of the innovations that uh, people like Lena Hidalgo and Harris County had put place about 24 hour voting. You were writing about it in real time. You're tweeting about it in real time with great alarm. I'm curious what you observed and what did you hear in terms of from the D.C., the federal um, government? How did they see uh, what was happening and what was their level of concern? Yeah, no, look, the the short answer is they did not have the level of concern initially. And, you know, it's I was far as a journalist, I was far from the only one. I mean, the the advocacy groups were even more alarmed. I mean, the White House really did not originally see this as a fight they wanted to be part of. I mean, their view was uh, tell us what the rules are and we can organize around them. Right. And it simply did not fit in to their original conception of the presidency. I mean, I think the the shift, obviously, President Biden has become much sharper on these issues. He gave a sharp, you know, gave a sharp speech in Georgia on the January 6th anniversary, as well as obviously the Philadelphia speech. And that reflects the larger change. I mean, when he came in, and I think you and I see have talked about this, I don't know if we've talked about it on the air. I mean, he essentially thought he was going to be Eisenhower, I think, mm-hmm. a, a senior figure who was going to bring the parties and the countries back together. And in that mode, he was very slow and also very reluctant Mm-hmm. to face the full impact of what was happening in the red states because it didn't fit in. I mean, you know, the red states were radicalizing at a moment when he wanted to say he was bringing the country together. So it wasn't only on voting. It was also the way in which red state governors were really trying to undermine him on the COVID response. Mm-hmm. Um, they were very slow to respond to that too, but their attitude has clearly changed and they've moved to a different message, which is kind of intriguing, which is essentially that there is this radicalizing anti-democratic MAGA 
small d, MAGA movement that is a threat and that we, broadly speaking, need a popular front in the American society to confront. But there are reasonable Republicans, and I am working with them whenever I can on infrastructure and the chips bill and so forth. You know, you can debate whether he's accurately portraying the the proportions in the Republican Party. Uh, I would say it's three to one Trump. But but the fact is that this has put him in a position where he is comfortable both calling out the attacks on democracy more aggressively than he was before and doesn't feel like he has to abandon the core message that he came in on, which, you know, I I think that's actually pretty... uh, pretty effective political messaging, but it took them a long time to get there. And there was a cost in allowing 2021 to unfold, to allow these laws to be passed without real effective pushback at the national level. Ron, I'm glad you brought that up. And, you know, what it made me think about is that we haven't heard like the kind of language that we've recently heard from Biden, you know, battle for the soulless nation, sacred proposition that all are created equal. We haven't heard this kind of language from a president since LBJ, arguably, and Obama may have used that kind of language every now and then, but it wasn't something he really leaned into. I'm kind of curious, what's your assessment on Biden's changing his rhetoric and messaging and language now? And what do you think is behind it? Uh, And also, how have you felt surprised? Did you see this coming? Did you ever think that you would hear him say those kind of words? So I've covered Biden since the 80s, right? I mean, wow. I, covered, I covered I covered his first presidential campaign. Uh, I wrote a long profile of him in National Journal, which I, I remember seeing on the wall in his Senate office when I hmm. at his office when I went when I went to see him. And you know, this is not that, that you know, summoning the country to a greater cause is not the natural mm-hmm. uh, space for Biden. He is a creature of the Senate. I mean, he, mm-hmm. he tends to view the parameters of the possible as being defined by what can get, you know, in those days, 50 votes, 51 votes, and in these days, what can get, get 60 votes. And he's not, I think, ever really been. There's no issue you can identify him as someone who has been kind of a crusader in, you know, over the course of his Senate career. Uh, maybe the 100,000 cops is the is the thing that I can remember, the 94 crime bill, which I covered intimately. Is, you know, I, I just can't think of any cause. I mean, the Violence Against Women Act, maybe those two, the assault weapon ban, that that kind of crime bill was, was kind of it for passion from Biden. So this... This was not, again, you know, this was not the way he conceived of his presidency. I mean, I I think he conceived of his presidency as an Eisenhower-like senior statesman who was bringing the country together and, you know, who at some level hoped, as he said, you know, a version of what Obama said, that the fever would break after Mm -hmm. the election, you know, and, Mm -hmm. you know, what, what, what he learned was that not only was the fever not breaking and, you know, one dimension of that is, is, is just the opposition legislatively, which is something we've seen before. I mean, obviously a new president comes in, they think the other party is going to cooperate. They don't. The thing we really hadn't seen before is what is happening in the red States Mm -hmm. and the way in which they took the Trump defeat, not as a moment to kind of recalibrate and rethink, but as a Mm -hmm. starting bell, to go even further in pursuing all of the cultural and racial grievances that lifted Trump, that provided Trump's tailwind. And as a result, I think the White House was very slow to respond to the and and, and are still slow on some of these fronts. But I would note, as, as I have in stories, I mean, the Justice Department is involved in litigation against almost every 
kind of rights restriction that is advancing in the red states on voting, on LGBTQ rights, on abortion, on protest, you know, these laws that are passing, increasing the penalties for protests. I mean, they are suing somewhere in a test case against almost everything that is happening in the red states, but they still haven't really pulled it all together and essentially called out what's going on. Although, as I said, Biden has gone vastly further than where he started. You know, it's interesting how uh, so many conservative commentators, including people I like, basically say, well, it, it, you know, he, he's tarnishing all Republicans. He's saying all Republicans. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's very clearly not. I mean, he's, mm-hmm. he's bending over backwards. And as I say, he's probably even being generous in the proportions of the party that he's kind of, it's not a 50-50 deal in the Republican I was going to say, it is yeah. kind of like all of them. Well, it's, it's like, if you look, I think if you look at poll, here, here's the thing. Here, I mean, if you look at polling consistently somewhere around a, a fifth to a quarter of Republicans will say that they know the election wasn't stolen. They know that Trump's activities after uh, the election were imp- improper, uh, that taking the, the documents to Mar-a-Lago was, I mean, th- there's consistently somewhere 20, 25% of Republicans who will say in a poll that Trump's behavior is wrong. But what we haven't seen is those Republicans in any significant numbers be willing to pass the Liz Cheney test of saying, I'm not going to vote for an election denier. I'm not not going to vote for someone who enables the worst instincts of Trump. I mean, like, you know, we see Doug Ducey in Arizona has, you know, endorsed a governor candidate whose campaign is basically centered on the idea that Ducey ran a corrupt and stolen election, you know, mm-hmm. and is covering up for And yet he right. and Deuce is Republican. People don't know that. Right? Deuce is a Republican. Yeah. Same thing. Chris Sununu in in New Hampshire seems to be endorsing the very far right Senate candidate who claims the election was stolen. And yeah. um, well, I, think, I think he changed his tune today. Apparently. Oh, did he? he saw oh, that, yeah. Yeah. oh, yeah. No, the, the, the candidate changed his tune. Yeah. The candidate. Which, which, which was probably the price of getting Sununu to, you know, say nice things about him, mm-hmm. if I had to guess. But but, you know, no one has any illusion that this is, you know, if, if, if Don Bolduc is in the Senate in 2024, is he going to vote to certify a Joe Biden win? I mean, right. does anybody have any confusion about that? So, no. you know, this Liz Cheney's defeat showed that mm. this quarter of the Republican Party does not have any leverage inside the party at this point. I mean, they can't win primaries very often. We see we've seen this all summer, the election deniers winning race after race after race. The leverage of that 20 to 25 percent is really exile. What, what, what was the line from Ulysses? You know, Stephen Dedalus, you know, my, my, my weapons are cunning and exile. There's a third one, I forget the third one. But their weapon is really exile. The mm-hmm. only way to loosen Trump's hold on the Republican Party and the hold of Trumpism with or without Trump personally is if it is shown that it cannot win elections. Mm-hmm. And it is in the power of those voters to in fact show that it cannot win elections. If, 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 those, not, if those Republican-leaning voters who say they view what's happening as a threat to democracy are, you know, withhold their votes from Republicans who are enabling what they are saying themselves as a threat to democracy, it, that's untenable. I mean, it's untenable for the Republican Party. And that really is 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 the surest path to change inside the party. But as long as, you know, Chris Sununu and Doug Ducey and the equivalent voters fall into line mm-hmm. behind these election threatening candidates, all the pressure in the party is in one direction. 
It's toward pacifying Trump and his supporters. Steve, in How We Win, your book, you spend the last half of the book talking about how we defeat the Confederates once and for all. Uh, and again, you know, when we say Confederates, we mean the modern day Confederates and that mindset and that kind of power and that kind of people who continue to use the Confederate battle plan. You lift up the organizations and leaders you call the liberators that are doing the work across the country to help create a multiracial democracy. And I think earlier, you know, we had discussed some of those geographic factors that are playing a role in the country's transformation. So I wanted to ask you if you can share why you chose to focus on the South and Southwest as the geographic center of political power in this country. Well, it's two things. There's the the history and then the math, right? I mean, these are the the South is where slavery occurred and and and, and transpired, and the Southwest used to be Mexico until it was taken from Mexico because. The Mexico said you can't hold people in slavery, and this was the whole 1848 Mexican War. So there's there's those elements, but that leads to the math of it, because those are the places where black people were. Like uh, Isabel Wilkerson has this line in her first book, Warmth the Other Sons. She says that nearly every black person in the South, which meant nearly every black person in the country, had a decision to make. And then that was led to the uh, the Great Migration, which actually my, my uh, uh, grandparents came to the North. But all black people were in the South, right? And so the majority of people in Georgia, the majority of people in South Carolina were actually African-American. That's, that's why they had to suppress the vote. And so you see the numbers there now, right? I mean, Stacey Abrams once texted uh, me, she says, thank you for believing in Georgia long before it was illogical. I said, it was always logical. If you could actually look at the numbers there, that the math has always existed in terms of the closest to the margins and the non-voting numbers of people of color and the continuing growth of the communities of color. And so that is why the South and Southwest have been these areas that have been transforming them. You could see it coming. But interestingly, people in politics didn't, right? Biden on election night titled my Georgia chapter, Georgia, that's not one we expected because Biden did not contest Georgia and did not expect to win Georgia. But Stacey Abrams and that coalition did. So those are the places that have the numbers to be able to flip. And we saw it in, in, in 2020 and in 2021, Georgia and Arizona in particular. So, Ron, I want to ask you in that in that sphere. I want to ask you about Texas, right? So that's one of the, the the states that I focus on in my book. I talk about Harris County in particular, the work of groups such as Texas Organizing Project, that led by Michelle Tremillo and Brianna Brown. They talk about their strategy being a county strategy, and and they talk about a cities out where you expand the vote of people of color in these different large urban areas. And then you have written a lot about how there is that that's the tension is playing itself out where the Republicans and the right are trying to boost the numbers in the more rural areas and suppress the numbers in the urban. So what's your analysis in general of that, but in Texas in particular, how that's playing itself out quantitatively? Yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, they're, they're, you know, we, we have essentially reached the point where we have the same politics Broadly speaking, in every state, no matter how red or how blue, I mean, you know, Democrats are improving in the metro areas essentially everywhere, and Republicans are consolidating their hold on the non-metro areas essentially everywhere. It's as true in California as it now is in Texas. Biden won all four of the largest metros in Texas. The last Democrat to do that was Lyndon Johnson in 1964, who had a certain degree of roots in Texas, you know, mm, um, uh, last Democratic presidential candidate to do that was. And yet he still got he still did not get as close as they thought 
both because of the extent of the Republican dominance of non-urban Texas, but also because of the one wrinkle that I mentioned all the way back when we, when we first started here, that is an interesting and potentially significant complication going forward, which is how much of an erosion are Democrats genuinely facing among Latino voters? I mean, there's no mm -hmm. question in South Texas and South Florida, there is a real erosion. Uh, the issue is how much are, of that are we going to see in 22 and 24 in Arizona and Nevada, uh, as well as in Texas? Certainly Arizona and Nevada are states very close to the tipping point, and Democrats can't really absorb a big erosion among mm -hmm. Latino voters, even if they are continuing to gain among suburban white collar whites, uh, which has been the key to their improvement in Texas, the key to their improvement in Arizona, less so in Nevada, where there aren't as many of them. So, you know, I'm interested in your thought on that. I have written on this. I mean, I personally, I don't think there's anything, there would be anything particularly surprising in an atmosphere of 9% inflation for Republicans to make at least some gains among Latino voters, most of whom are in working class families, living very close to the margin, who really feel it when gas prices and grocery prices go up. That would not shock me. The bigger question is, is there in fact, as a lot of center-right Democratic commentators argue, a values-based realignment going on where Republicans are systematically raising their floor among Latinos, which would have a significant effect on kind of the future distribution of uh, power uh, in that Latinos are driving the increase in diversity uh, in, in most states. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll hold my thought for a second, but I mean, do you, do you, do you see a, a threat there that where Democrats have kind of gotten used to maybe 63 to 65% of Latinos, that the future may be 57 to 60%? And what would that mean? Yeah, I don't, I don't have the same analysis that a lot of people are talking about is that there's been a, a fundamental erosion. And I actually also don't think that there is a great difference between the certainly if, if people communicate you know, properly between Latinos in California, Arizona and Texas, California, it's very clearly, you know, mm -hmm. two thirds, almost 70%. Um, so the challenges that communities face are, are, are similar. What the people on the ground in Texas were telling me what Michelle Tremino was telling me in, in 2020 was that it wasn't that Latinos were defecting over to Trump. It's that they were getting out the infrequent voting Latinos. Mm -hmm. And I, right. my analysis of the numbers right. is you yeah. do see that even like Hidalgo County, that the margin shrunk dramatically from like, I don't know, 30 or 40% down to like 5%, something in that, in that, in that order of magnitude. But Biden still got more votes than Obama had. The raw number went up, right? but it, it didn't go up nearly as large as the Republican. I thought, I thought, I thought he was going to win uh, Harris County by 300,000 votes and he didn't. The, but right. I mean, that that's clearly what happened. That Trump turned out a lot of infrequent and, and reached a lot of infrequently voting Latino younger men mm -hmm. in particular, who were not as alienated as you know people expected from his anti-immigrant language, which admittedly he didn't broadcast as much in 2020 as he did as he did earlier. But no one had any confusion about where. And look, I mean, there are people who are worried. There are Democrats who are worried that even Catherine, you know, Cortez Masto. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, as the first Latina, I believe the first Latina in the Senate, you know, mm -hmm. she could she could run four or five, six points lower among Latinos than she did last time, which could be enough to sink her. Mm -hmm. You know, probably would be enough to sink her if it was five or six points. And, 
you know, if you look at polling, it's still north of 60% of Latinos who say they are pro-choice, pro-gun control, and who say the Republican Party has been taken over by racists. But if there is, you know, if this sustains, and if Republicans start moving into that 40% range among Latinos on a regular basis, it's not necessarily fatal to Democrats, but it is a, a, it, it is a change in the landscape to go from around 33, 35, which is all Trump got after all. I mean, Trump kind of in 2020 really just kind of reverted to where Republicans had been before the, the disastrous 16 and 12 numbers. But if you start moving up to 40% on a regular basis, then you know the landscape does look different in, right. in some of the states right. that Democrats right. have to win. And, and I don't know if you saw the, the report that came out from Forward Majority, which is a Democratic group that um, is focused on state legislatures, but they did this really impressive year and a half long attempt to model out the next decade. And the conclusion hmm. was pretty much what you would expect, which is that the Democratic position is going to become a little more marginal in the upper Midwest, mm-hmm. and it's going to improve in the Southwest. And there is going to come a point where Arizona and Texas and Georgia are not going to be nice to have. They're going to be need to have in all likelihood. And that really requires the party to mobilize these diverse younger generations that you write and talk about. Right. And that's the fundamental point I would raise in terms of Texas. The Democrats have failed to invest and they failed to prioritize and they failed to, to champion too strongly for fear of alienating white voters they don't want to be too strongly in the side of the uh, uh latino voters and so that and they're certainly not putting the level of resources in like abbott the mm-hmm. governor of texas is putting enormous amount of resources into courting latinos and so the democrats have not moved their resources in that direction so that could be a whole additional podcast i'm sure <laughs> yeah no look i mean that is i mean that is a significant issue because it, it does appear that in texas as in Arizona and Georgia, Democrats are not going to win as many college-educated white voters as they do in Colorado and California and Connecticut. But they are probably at the point where they are winning enough of them to win mm-hmm. if they can get reasonable turnout and something close to their historic margins among Black and Hispanic voters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, they're they're probably, you know, what is, uh, Warnock and Beto will probably get somewhere around 45, maybe a little higher for Beto and Kelly will probably get a majority of college educated white voters. Uh, that's, you know, that again, it's not Colorado where it's 58 or California where it's 58, but, or 60 maybe even potentially, but it's enough. It mm-hmm. should be enough mm-hmm. if you're, if the bucket isn't leaking on the other side right. among Latino voters in particular. And, you know, I think the investment, but also the kind of the understanding of what's happening. Ron, I want to, this ties into what I want to ask you. We are running up against time. My final question to you is, and you started to touch on this a bit, but I, and I'm sure many people are curious, what is your take on the midterms? So here we are, you know, it's, we're in the middle of September, it's crunch time. Originally the reporting and messaging and narrative was, oh, you know, Dems are doomed party of, you know, that's in the White House Mm -hmm. traditionally is always doomed, but also Democrats are not doing what they need to do. They're doomed. And there's been a shift. And there's I also see a shift in the reporting. But also, I personally get a little bit worried about people becoming too complacent, right? Mm. To feel feeling too hope, too hopeful. Well, how do you see it? And, you know, what are your thoughts? So at the broadest level, I think that the midterm election has moved from 
the traditional frame of a referendum into the, on the party in power into something that is much more of a choice that is not only focused on what Democrats have or have not done, but is much more, but but includes a significant element of what Republicans would do if given power. And because of that shift, we are likely to see a largely a confirmation of the battle lines that we've had in 16, 18, and 20 between these coalitions of transformation and coalition of restoration. Uh, and that's going to produce more of a mixed verdict kind of outcome. Look, uh, Republicans have to win so few seats to win the House that it would be historic for Democrats to avoid that. They've only been four times since the Civil War where the party holding the White House hasn't lost at least the five seats that Republicans need to win the majority in the House. But it, you know, even if they can't, Democrats can't prevent that. I mean, there's a big difference between losing 12 and losing 27 in terms of your ability to win it back down the road. And if you, and I think, uh, Charlene, I think in the House, we are likely to see the the class divide widen. I mean, that, you know, I think all of the issues that have changed the environment, uh, abortion rights, gun control, the threat to democracy from Trump, climate, they are, I think, more likely to fortify and help Democrats recover in white collar places. Whereas I think in blue collar places, even if voters agree with Democrats on those issues, it's kind of hard to get past the immediate challenge of prices and inflation. So I think we could see a widening house, a continuation of the divide between kind of white collar blue and and blue collar red. uh, And that lowers the ceiling on the total number of seats uh, uh, Republicans can win. The Senate is just a dogfight. And, And I think the playing field is probably shrinking as we go. Mm -hmm. You know, you could almost say that you could reduce the Senate to the question of whether Republicans can win both Nevada and Georgia and hold their own losses to only Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Like if they can do that, they can win the Senate. If they can't, they can't, Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, and and you you know, I don't think they are going to be winning New Hampshire or Arizona or Colorado or Washington. I think Nevada and Georgia are their only real prospects myself at this mm-hmm. point. Again, it might've been different six months ago, mm-hmm. but in this new environment where we're kind of recreating where we've been, I don't think they can win New Hampshire or Arizona with the candidates they have. So that means the max Republican gains are two seats, pickups. And then the question is, can Democrats, if, if both of those, if Democrats lose both of those, can they win two seats? And the, mm-hmm. and it's Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. and Ohio probably. And I'm not really, I, and I don't really even think it's at all guaranteed that Republicans win win either of those two seats. And even if they win Nevada, where again, you don't have as big a white collar pool that is motivated by abortion and democracy and Trump, um, even if they win Nevada, I think Georgia, in the end, the candidate contrast, it's just hard to imagine that not mattering. I mean, we all know our elections are becoming more parliamentary and they're more about the party and less about the person. But man, you are pushing that to its limit with a candidate as obviously unqualified as Walker. So wouldn't shock me if Narrow Republican win in the House, Democrats hold the Senate, mm-hmm. and on the governorships, Democrats win the states that they care most about, with the possible exceptions of Arizona and Georgia. Mm-hmm. There you go. There you go, folks. All right. You, Lots to discuss. Really, um, the finish line is in sight here as we head towards uh, November. So, really appreciate you taking the time, Ron. It's um, really great to catch up with you and, and that your insight you know, is really valuable for our, our, our listeners. We really appreciate it. Well, well, thanks for having me. I'm always interested in what you're writing and thinking and saying. And just one final thought I mean, it, it's kind of daunting to think of 
what the country is going to go through in 2024. I mean, yep. you know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's like what, what I often say is I really do feel we are living through the modern equivalent of the 1850s. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. only thing I don't know is what the modern equivalent of the 1860s looks like. But the, 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 the possibility in 2024 of just enormous civil, political, legal conflict over who won is, is just... It's and I think we might even get it. We might even get a, a sneak preview in November. Is Don Boldick is our 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 Blake Masters and Don Boldick or Kerry Lake? If they lose, are they going to just say they lost? Right, right, huh. right. Yeah. All right. Anyway, right. on that happy note. <laughs> all right. Okay. Thanks so much, Ron. All right. That's all the time we have for today. Ron is just such an insightful, knowledgeable, and just you know his level of clarity is also so rare and appreciated. I'm really glad um, to have that conversation with him again. Um, so thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Be on the lookout for our next episode of our special How We Win series. You can follow Ron at, on Twitter at, at Ron Brownstein. Also, a reminder to check out his new book, Rock Me on the Water. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy in Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook. We're subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. Democracy in Color is also on Instagram. You can follow us at Democracy in Color. If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker, support from Charlene Chang, Bola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Till the next time, keep the faith.